Well, hey folks, Jeff Salzman here and welcome to The Daily Evolver. You can find all my stuff at dailyevolver.com. It's good to be on Facebook Live. It's good to be on YouTube Live via Integral Life. Thank you, Integral Life and all of the fine folks there. And you can reach me at jeff at dailyevolver.com. So let's just get into it. My main self-appointed job here at The Daily Evolver is to point out significant real-time events that I think represent cultural evolution and consciousness evolution. And this last Sunday, one came at me, I have to say, from left field. It was the latest edition, Sunday New York Times, style section, and this vaunted modern love column that everybody loves in New York Times, where they publish one essay per week from readers. It's highly competitive. Readers write about their love life. And the one this last Sunday, the column was called, He Married a Sociopath, colon, me. Subhead, I've learned how to tell the truth, which is why I can tell when my husband is lying. I thought it was uh, an amazing essay, and I'll talk about why I think so. But first, let me just lay out a little bit of integral context for how I see things here. So I maintain, and I've done this through many podcasts, those of you who have listened know, that the evolution of consciousness and culture is going to include some of what we now see as ugly or unseemly or somehow outside of our circle of what we prefer life to consist of. And that our progeny will look back on us generations hence, and they will see us as repressed sticks in the mud, much as we now, from our perspective, look at blue amber cultures, traditional cultures that are based in a mannered conformity, like the Victorians, for instance. And that at some point in development, that kind of mannered conformity becomes suffocating, appropriately so, and we want to break out of it. And as integralists, we also want to see, seeing the whole sort of spiral of development, that traditionalism or this mannered conformity itself is terrific progress over the previous stage, which was red warrior chaos and by definition uncivilized. Think of the Ten Commandments. It's like it was news at one point in our development that we ought not kill, steal, and lie. And so that's what traditionalism does. By definition, it civilizes people. No more eye for an eye, justice is mine, saith the Lord, and so forth. And this comes online in various ways, all wild and woolly different ways in different cultures. But it, the structure of consciousness is uniform, as in this conformist stage. And all of that, this civilizing, and every, by the way, every child has to go through this too as an individual, this civilizing, this learning how to sit down and shut up and play by the rules, is the thing that makes humanity and humans worthy to go to the next step, which is orange. 
which is modernism. And that's the place where people often lose their religion or certainly it stops becoming the center of their lives. And they move away from the family perhaps. And they do that because they can now be trusted to play by a new set of rules of modernity, which is some version of everybody's free to make their own way. So that's our orange modernity. And then we move into the next stage, which is green post-modernity. And one of the imperatives of green is to look at all of that, all of these previous ideologies, critically question them, question everything. And above all, see how these rules, often unseen, you know, invisible, have shut whole groups of people out given them a, a harder row to hoe. And, and that's right, you know, traditionalism casts out nonconformers, the sinners are out. And modernity has a different kind of way of excluding, it's, it's not so active, it's just a, a blindness to the ways in which the meritocracy grants unearned privileges. And Green sees these things. And so Green keeps things going in evolution by raising consciousness around racism, feminism, gay rights, and you know, begins this project of fully including people outside the mainstream. And like all stages, it has its extremes and it does it in a healthy way and unhealthy way. And just, you know, we talk about that a lot. But one of the healthy things about green is that it has brought forth, and we're seeing it happen in real time. I mean, this essay here about the sociopath is, is I think, the latest example of you know, new norms in our culture where we are, you know, for instance, it's not acceptable anymore to make fun of how people look. Jokes that we would now see as fat shaming were a staple of comedy for generations. And now we see pop stars like Lizzo who shake it as good as the, little, the skinny girls. And there's a whole new sensibility of including people whose body shapes were left out. You never saw them in the media. Uh, or, you know, if you did, they were comedic. And we see leading edge social media influencers who are gaining traction for showing their flaws. You know, not just their glossy, uh, face-tuned, retouched images, which also exist, but like Chrissy Teigen, showing your cellulite and pregnancy. And it's actually just a bigger range of what is acceptable to be seen and included. I make one of my favorite <laughs> arguments, if I do say so myself, about this in sort of a technical way, if you will, in an episode I did a while back. I think it's called Cirque Seinfeld and Saatchi. And it's about postmodern art. And I use Cirque du Soleil, Seinfeld, and most apropos of this discussion, the work at the Saatchi Museum in London, which is my favorite museum in the world, postmodern museum. It's this British postmodern movement that happened, I believe, in the 80s, which basically just shows ugly up close. And postmodernity does that. It wants to shock you with ugliness and dares you to say that it's not art. And so if you're interested in that argument, go to that 
episode on the Daily Evolver. So we're seeing this happening, evolving, that looks shaming is out. And what's new and next, I think, is the inclusion of people regardless within a certainly widening parameter, uh, including people uh, regardless of how they act and how their personalities operate. We see this with the mainstreaming in schools and institutions of conditions like autism and Asperger's and various mental health issues in general. We see that these people, it's like Greta Thunberg. You know, she, she puts her autism right out front. It's a superpower, as she says. It's actually, we get interested in these people because we realize, wait a second, this sort of conformity that we, this sort of modern conformity needs to be broken because that itself is suffocating. And so we see it and I see it and I love it so much uh, on Reddit. My, you know, I, I think that I'm not on social media, but I guess I am because I go to Reddit a lot and read all of these conversations. Reddit is being listening in on the conversations of the world. You don't even have to participate. And I generally don't. I almost never do. But I read these com whole communities of people who are self-diagnosing uh, their mental health issues and personality issues and diagnosing each other with all sorts of categories and spectrums of behavior and sexual fluidity and all kinds of kinks that in previous stages, including modernity, would have been seen as deviant and in some cases criminal. And depending on the culture, uh, you would be putting your immortal soul in jeopardy if you did these things, and now they're normalized. And this is evolution, cultural and consciousness evolution. This is a raising of consciousness, an increasing circle of what's allowed in and what we're interested in giving moral consideration and, and relating to. And it's exciting and very, very fruitful society, not without its downsides and you know, you know, we talk about that, but one way of looking at it is it's a mass therapy of the culture. For those of you who are into developmental theory, what people are doing in these, again, in this mass movements is they are making subject object. Okay. For those of you know the, the jargon and I'll explain it. It's the subject of one level so the I at modernity becomes the object of the subject of the next. So now I'm able to see myself instead of be myself from this new, higher, bigger self. So instead of concluding that I'm weird, what's wrong with me? It's now I have social anxiety. And I can hear from other people who do and what worked for them and, I, and what doesn't. And my behaviors, my impulses, my, even my thoughts are now an it instead of an I. And I can see them instead of be them. And then they, I have this ever-increasing I. And this is a huge process that is going on in our culture that we need to take note of. It's very, very healthy. And so now, to get back to the subject of um, this 
episode, I guess. It's one of the final frontiers in accepting what was seen as deviant behavior. And that is this whole category, I guess, of antisocial personality disorders. And these are people and children who are deficient in empathy. They don't feel guilt or remorse. Again, a spectrum. There are people who, you know, lie and cheat and bully. And at the extremes, there are people who get into dangerous, violent criminal activity. And that's the range here. You know, the two big categories that we seem to have settled on in the culture is the, the difference between psychopaths and sociopaths. Psychopaths, and I'll, I'll use the Google definition here, Psychopaths tend to be more manipulative, can be seen by others as more charming, lead a semblance of normal life, and they minimize risk in criminal activities. Sociopaths, on the other hand, tend to be more reckless, erratic, rage-prone, and unable to lead as much of a normal life. So the difference between psychopaths and sociopaths. And so that then gets me to this article, he married a sociopath me, and I wanted to re read a little bit because it's interesting, first of all, to me, that she identifies herself as a sociopath and uh, explains why. And I'll read a little bit of it. And this is uh, written by a woman, her name is Patrick uh, it, which is short for Patri uh, Patricia, P-A-T-R-I-C, Gagne, G-A-G-N-E. And she has a website and, you know, uh, she's a doctor in psychology. And here's what she has to say. She said, I knew as early as age seven that I wasn't like other children. I didn't care about things the way they did. I was a girl who mostly felt nothing. It wasn't until college that a therapist told me what I had long suspected. My lack of emotion and empathy are hallmarks of sociopathy. A few years later, doctors would confirm my diagnosis. Human beings weren't designed to be functional without access to emotion. So we sociopaths often become destructive in order to feel things. Become destructive in order, yeah, here we go. So we sociopaths often become destructive in order to feel things. I used to break into houses or steal cars for the adrenaline rush of knowing I was somewhere I wasn't allowed to be, just to feel, period. It didn't take long for me to realize this was not an effective life strategy. Rather than risk incarceration or worse, I used my diagnosis to fuel my pursuit of a PhD in psychology. Like many, I gained my first understanding of sociopaths from pop culture, which, portray, which portrays us as singularly dangerous and threatening, our flat emotional state and lack of remorse making us unfit for normal life. Think Hannibal Lecter here. It wasn't until I began my research in graduate school that I learned sociopath exists along a wide spectrum, like many, people with psych like many people with psychiatric disorders. You'll find us everywhere in daily life as your colleagues, neighbors, friends, 
and sometimes members of your own family. Pretty challenging, isn't it? So then she goes on to talk about marrying her husband who knew her as a girl. So he was kind of norm, she was kind of normalized in his world view. So she, he, she, she, he kind of went with it. She talks about that. But then she talks about being married. She says, when you're a sociopath in a marriage, especially one with children, she has children, honesty is critical. Even more, I would argue, than for people in normal relationships. As a sociopath, I had difficulty prioritizing telling the truth. But as a wife and a mother, I forced myself to learn. Interesting. She says, it hasn't been easy. People claim to want complete honesty from their partner or spouse. But I have found that they aren't always happy when they get it especially when that honesty is coming from a sociopath. My husband was never thrilled to hear that I had spent the day in a stranger's house without that person's knowledge. Jesus Christ. I mean, I draw the line there. I have to say, I am not increasing my circle of moral consideration to people who... Spend the day at a stranger's house without that, without that person's knowledge. That's a challenge. Anyway, she goes on, she said, or her husband wasn't happy to, to hear, that I embezzled the cash for his surprise birthday trip to Hawaii from an employer. But his real anger was reserved for the fact that I never felt guilty about these things. A few years after we married, with his encouragement, I'm, I'm moving along here. She says, a few years after we married, with his encouragement, my behavior started to shift. I would never experience shame the way other people do, but I would learn to understand it. Thanks to him, I started to behave. I, start, I stopped acting, acting like a sociopath. And thanks to me, he started to see the value in not caring as much about what others thought. He noticed how often guilt was forcing his hand. This is the other side of things. He noticed how guilt was often forcing his hand frequently in unhealthy directions. He would never be a sociopath, but he saw value in a few of my personality traits. He learned to say no and mean it, especially when it came to activities he was doing purely out of obligation, family visits or holiday gatherings he didn't enjoy but couldn't decline. He started to recognize when he was being manipulated he noticed when emotions were clouding his judgment. What a pair we are. Isn't that something? So it's worth reading and worth checking out. And actually, she has a website. And she is, uh, as she says in her website, I am working to expand the definition of sociopathy to include its status as a spectrum disorder. Sociopaths are not inherently evil people. We suffer from what I believe to be an emotional learning disorder one which is both relatable and treatable. So God bless her. But, you know, please stay out of people's houses. And I guess she says she has, of course, and she's learned. And hallelujah. Okay, so the difference between sociopaths and psychopaths. And I've talked at length here on the Daily Evolver about the psychopath in the White House. And I think he qualifies even by the definition. And what was the definition? Um, manipulative, charming, 
lead a semblance of normal life and minimize risk in criminal activities. <laughs> I think that kind of qualifies. You know, I we talk about the green norms, about don't make fun of people, don't bully. Donald Trump did not get that memo. The truth is about a third to a 40% of the people in this country don't really have that memo. He hasn't even gotten the memo about lying and cheating. Uh, and most of his followers actually have. But it's interesting to see the power of psychopathy. And I want to play a clip from Trump from yesterday, uh, where he was on Fox News for an hour. I feel for these people, you know, these three hosts, and they're kind of stealing themselves because they know they've got him for an hour. But they have to, as people love them. They're their people. And so I'm going to play this. It's a good example of what I'm talking about. It is, and it starts out with Amesley Earhart. This is the middle of the conversation, probably a half hour into it. I skipped ahead because at 20 minutes, he hadn't stopped talking about Russia and the Biden criminal family. And I, I just can't imagine how that's good politics at this stage. And a lot of people can't. I mean, Frank Luntz, the uh, Republican pollster, said that it's the worst campaign he's ever seen. I don't know. Honestly, I don't know. The superpower of, of Trump is uh, unplumbed yet to my mind. And I'm nervous about thinking anything other than he might win. So I don't go there. It might be a psychological defense. I think it is. Anyway, uh, here he gets a nice softball question for, from Amesley about the violence on the left this summer and you know what's how's he feel about that and is he going to go into this debate tomorrow night and hit that hard and here's what he says president let's talk about law and order in these democratic cities you have like portland and you have seattle new york city we've seen riots take place uh, protests take place if you win and um, the people who did not vote for you go out in the streets and um, we see a lot of what we saw a few months ago. How do you plan on handling that? Because um, it worries people. They shouldn't be worried. We're for law and order. And if we win, they'll be exhausted. They've had it. They'll be exhausted. They've been, what if they they're look, not? What if they're I won not? I last time and they spied on my campaign and they tried to overthrow the president. And if it wasn't me with phony stories like Russia, Russia, Russia. And now here goes Schiff again, Shifty Schiff again. You know, that uh, the laptop was done by Russia. The Biden laptop was conceived of and done by Russia. I mean, you got to understand what this is. These people are, I don't even say sick. There's... They're horrible, horrible liars. It's a terrible thing. What Trump has always been is, as I've diagnosed integrally, a red character. He's operating from the egoic state, uh, which is, you know, basically the, the real person inside the circle is oneself. And other people really are seen as objects. I mean, maybe it expands to the family, but it's not expanded very far. And that he's just a fighter. You know, he talks about being a winner, but he's won, he's lost. He just claims victory and moves on. And that's what he's doing here. He just can't help himself but fight, I guess. Um, and the question is, how sick are we of it? And how turned on are people who hate the same people he does, which is the elites, the media, and so forth? How many of them are coming out? How? And maybe he's right. Maybe just getting them as fired up as possible is the road to a second term. 
but good lard. Um, I hope not. And I also would say just in terms of that Google definition of psychopathy, that, you know, Trump is civilized enough. He is uh, managed to stay this side of the law. Could you imagine just listening to that? Could you imagine being in a meeting with him or trying to stand up to him in any kind of way or negotiation? I mean, it's just one of those things about psychopaths is they have the energy of three people. They're exhausting. And it's funny to me that he said that if he wins again, that they'll be exhausted, the left will be exhausted. At least he gets that. And he's right, we're already exhausted. And we'll hopefully enough people are that uh, we have a different result here and that we can put him in the rear view mirror and uh, talk about Trumpism and uh, not so much just Trump. How about that? All right, and I guess, oh, I wanted to do just a quick update on a new episode. I posted a new episode last night, uh, which is a conversation with me, Jason Lang and Namali Pereira that we titled, When the Spiritual Left Turns Right. And it's about, uh, it was an email that Jason sent to me and he said, um, what's your pulse on all the conspirituality out there? And I hadn't heard the term, but he described it. And he said, the weird convergence I'm seeing of my spiritual friends going hard right, Trump, even QAnon. And we talked about it. And, uh, you know, what's it mean from an integral perspective? Because I, I see it some of it myself in the integral world. You know, is it a, a, a reaction against the re recent eruptions of mean green? Is it an evolutionary regression brought on by the stress of the pandemic? Or is it a strange integration of split off fragments of earlier stages? Which I think there's an argument for that. Or do these people see something that the rest of us don't. I think that's probably true too. That's what's so cool about Integral is that you know there's a lot of stuff you don't know. So anyway, check that out if that uh, appeals to you. And I think I'll end with a laugh. It's a cartoon, Namali sent it to me this morning. It's an old Gary Larson cartoon. It's just a, a good laugh about what's going on today. It, little did he know when he did this cartoon. It shows these two uh, psychologists walking into this dictator's office, and he's got this huge picture of himself on the wall, and he's sitting behind a desk with all of his amulets and, and badges and medals and everything. And they say to him, they're holding their clipboards. It's so Gary Larson. It's so cool. And they say, sorry, your highness, but you're really not the dictator of Ithuania, a small European republic. In fact, there is no Ithuania. The hordes of admirers, the military parades, this office. We faked it all as an experiment in human psychology. In fact, your highness, your real name is Edward Belcher. You're from Long Island, New York. And it's time to go home, Eddie. <laughs> okay, folks, that's it for today. Thanks for tuning into the Daily Evolver. Again, check me out at dailyevolver.com. Thank you for Integral Life for hosting me on Integral Live and write me at jeff at dailyevolver.com. All right, take care, folks. See you next time.